Good morning. We're going to read from Luke chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, want to open with a word of prayer, but just in case you haven't heard, um, I think everybody pretty much knows, our, our, one of our elders, our good friend, Steve Carlson, um, he uh, suffered uh, bleeding on his brain earlier this past week and um, went into the hospital and they decided to do brain surgery and relieve the, the pressure, drain off some of the fluid. Um, during his recovery, he had a stroke and um, so he's still in unknown state. We don't know what's happening. He's still sedated pretty heavily. Um, he's responsive but not coordinated, so we're not sure what's going on with him. Um, I just wanted to announce that so we can pray for him, but I, did, I didn't want to spring it on you in a prayer. Um, so, and there'll be more about that in the announcements, but uh, let, let's pray before we turn to the word of the Lord. Lord, we've heard... Um, and sang so many wonderful truths about you, the, 
the Godhead see in, in uh, veiled in, in flesh deity. And Lord, that's the real meaning of Christmas is, is the coming of God to be with us. We're grateful for that. And so, uh, Lord, as we celebrate this season, may we remember uh, what the Christ Mass, what the, the celebration of Jesus is in his birth, as well as the fun things that we do on top of that. And Father, we want to pray for our brother Steve and uh, for his wife Jen and all the things that they're facing. Lord, we, we earnestly pray that Steve will recover from this brain surgery, from this, this small stroke, and that, Lord, you will surprise everyone, his doctors, himself, us, with how well he's recovered. Um, we've seen other, um, other folks we know who've had strokes and seem to be fine now. So we know, Lord, it's within your power to restore him. Uh, Lord, thank you for the, the relief that he received in the brain surgery, and we just pray for his recovery now. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be with Jen as she's having to make some pretty big decisions and, and face a lot of challenges. Lord, I pray that our church family would be there to support her and to be with her in whatever way she needs. But Lord, please heal Steve and just give him an ama amazing recovery, uh, uh, something that would surprise his doctors. Because we know that Steve will be talking about you, that um, he will see your mercy in your hand in all of this. So have mercy on our brother, we pray. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, would you show us more of yourself? Help us to see who you are, what you've done, and uh, Lord, why it was that you were born in a manger. Uh, Lord, bless this time in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Jonathan read from verse 57. It was just kind of the announcement, the beginning of the birth of John the Baptist. I want to back up a little bit and tell the story so we understand what's going on. And then what I'm going to preach, what I'm going to spend my time in is what Zechariah, his father, said. So Zechariah was a priest. He was from the tribe of Levi, priestly office, and he served at the temple. And one day while he was serving at the temple, they drew lots to see who would get to go in and burn incense. That was a very special thing. You didn't, it wasn't like the priests were always in and out of the temple. These special things like burning incense or offering these, these offerings were unique. And so you got a once-in-a-lifetime chance if you got drawn by lot to go in and do that. It was, it was an honor uh, for a priest to be able to do that. And the lot fell to Zechariah. He got to go in and burn incense to the Lord. And when he went into the temple, he was amazed at what he saw. It wasn't just the inside of the temple. There was an angel standing there. And the angel announced to him that his wife, Elizabeth, would have a baby, even though they're very old. She would have a baby, and this baby would be the herald who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And Zechariah asked, how can I know this is going to happen? He asked the angel kind of in, in a, a questioning way, how am I going to know this? The angel's response was amazing. I am Gabriel who stands before the face of the Lord. You asked the wrong question. <laughs> he said, and so because you've asked, because you've doubted, you're going to be silent until the child is born. And so when Zechariah leaves the temple, when he comes back out, all the people are waiting because he was in there way too long. They're like, something's going on, and he can't speak. And so Zechariah has not spoken for at least nine months. We don't know how long it was after the angel appeared to him that, that um, Elizabeth became pregnant. Uh, John the Baptist now is eight days old because he's going to be circumcised and named. And so it's, it's been at least nine months where he hasn't spoken. And so that's where the story picks up, is when they come to name the child, they're going to circumcise and name the child. They said, well, we'll just name him Zechariah. Well, the angel told Zechariah, no, his name will be John. 
And so somehow Zechariah communicated that to his wife, and his wife says, nope, John. And so they, they go to John, uh, Zechariah, and they, they make signs to him. Now, some people think that he was struck not only mute, but also deaf. Uh, but that's not what is said. It constantly says that he was just unable to speak. So I think the people just assumed, since he can't speak, he probably can't hear. So they're making signs. What do you want to name the child? I would love to see what those signs were. How do you sign to somebody, what's the name of the kid? Baby, name, you know. And he grabs a thing and he writes down his name is John. And immediately his mouth is opened and he begins to prophesy. That's where we start in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So what Zechariah is about to say is not just personal opinion. It's not just reflection. This is a prophecy. The Holy Spirit is guiding him to speak. Now, it's, it's remarkable that he's been unable to speak for at least nine months, and what comes out of his mouth? What is the first thing he talks about? Um, does he you know, finally say, oh, I'm so, I'm so glad I'm able to talk? No, what, was, what came out of his mouth was the most important thing to him. So I don't know if you remember last year about this time. It was actually in January. I told you the story of a football player named Damar Hamlin. Damar Hamlin is, a, tight, is a, a defensive end or defensive back, I think, for the Buffalo Bills. And the Bills were playing the Bengals in the last Sunday night football game of the season from last season. This, this would be heading towards the playoffs. About two-thirds of the way through the first quarter, the, uh, the Bengals have the ball. They hand it to T. Higgins, and Higgins runs, uh, breaks through the line, picks up a couple of yards, and DeMar tackled him. So after the play, you know, everybody's getting back up. DeMar Hamlin steps up adjusted his face mask a little bit, took two steps and fell flat on his back, just dropped right over. So the, the, the training staff rushed out onto the field, and within a moment or two, they're doing CPR on him. And a couple of minutes later, about 10 minutes later, an ambulance is on the field, and they carted him away to the hospital. What had happened is when DeMar tackled Higgins, he took the helmet right to the center of his chest. It was a really sharp blow to his chest, and that interrupted his heart. That, that, was, that was something that put him into cardiac arrest. His heart stopped on the field. And so he was in the hospital unconscious for a few days while they were working on him, trying to recover and see how he would be. When he finally woke up, do you know what his first words were? Did we win? The most important thing to him was that football game. DeMar Hamlin had wanted to play football in the NFL since he was a little kid. It was everything he worked in his life for was football. He wanted to be in the NFL. He was very proud to be in the Buffalo Bills. And so when he woke up, the first thing on his mind is football. It was what he was about. Zachariah didn't go into cardiac arrest. He wasn't unconscious, but he was unable to speak for nine months. When his mouth is finally opened, what is the most important thing that comes out of his mouth? It was not his wife. It was not his son, John. It was God. And so listen to how he, he begins to speak about this. The first thing he, he talks about is a visit. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The first words out of his mouth is blessed. The name of this prayer is often referred to as uh, the Benedictus, which is Latin for blessed. Um, that's the first word of this. So the first word out is blessed be the Lord. He praises God. Now, if God made you mute for nine months for simply asking, all I did was ask a question. How will I know? I think a lot of people today would be really upset with him about that. Why would you do this to me? Why would you? I just ask a question. It's not that big a deal. 
But that's not Zachariah's approach. Zachariah is, his first response when his mouth is opened is, bless the Lord. God has done an amazing thing. He says, bless the Lord, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Notice that's in the past tense. He has visited and he has redeemed. Um, That would make you think maybe he's talking about John, right? But it can't be because in the next verse, he's going to talk about the, the house of David. So Zechariah is from the house of Levi. That's, that's not who he's talking about. So what does he mean by this? What, what is he talking about when he says the Lord has visited and redeemed his people? Well, that, that idea that the Lord has visited is not as common in the scriptures as you would think. It happens twice. It's referred to twice in the Old Testament. And they're really instructive for how it fits in here. So the first time in the Old Testament it says that the Lord visited his people is in Exodus chapter 4. So the story of Exodus is Israel has moved into Egypt. They've been in Egypt for about 400 years. Some portion of that they've been slaves in Egypt. And they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord hears them. And he, he talks to Moses. And, he, and Moses' brother Aaron meets him. And Moses and Aaron come to Israel in Egypt. And they announce to them what's about to happen. And so verse uh, 31 of chapter 4 of Exodus says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. He's talking to the people of Israel and they heard that the Lord had visited. So when it says the Lord had visited his people, it wasn't that there was some physical manifestation of him to them. It was he had visited them by redeeming them, by bringing them out of Egypt, this this promise. And it's spoken in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet that he has seen their affliction and, and they're, they're going to be delivered. So that's the first time that it talks about um, the Lord visiting his people. The second one is um, years later. So after the Exodus, Israel's led out of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they come into the promised land, the land that they were to inherit, and they take it over and they settle. Now, after they settled in the promised land, there was a time called Judges. And this is where they didn't have a king in Israel, but they had these people who would rise up and judge, like we would think of judges with a gavel and everything, but also they would lead them and they would take them into battle and deliver them from their enemies. This was the time of the judges. Well, at some point during the time of the judges, before David became their king, there was a famine. And during this famine, a man named Elimelech and his family left the promised land and moved into Moab because that's, that's where there was food. And so the book of Ruth starts at the beginning of that when they're in Moab, and verse 6 says, Naomi and her family, that Naomi was Elimelech's wife, heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his, his people and given them food. So in this instance, God didn't manifest himself physically in Israel. What he did is he came and he, he restored the harvest. When Naomi returns to the promised land, they're having a harvest. So this means that the food has been planted, it's grown, and now it's ripe and it's ready to come back in. And that scene is God visiting his people. So what does this have to do with Zechariah's uh, prophecy about his son? Well, when you look at that idea that the Lord heard his people in, in Egypt and he knew of their affliction and that he promised that he would deliver them, Jude verse 5 tells us that that was Jesus that did that. Jude 5 says that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. So this visiting of God to his people to redeem them from Egypt, that's tied into who Jesus is. That's him coming to visit. And then this other one, this idea that Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, that they would 
go back to Israel and that they would be redeemed. Well, I left out a little detail about Elimelech. He wasn't just from Israel. He was from a little town called Bethlehem. And there was a famine, and so they left. And when they returned, they come back to Bethlehem. And, and so this is that idea of them returning, uh, or the, the Lord visiting them and bringing them food. It was in the place of Bethlehem. But it also says that he visited and he redeemed them. And that's where Naomi is, uh, and Ruth's story comes in, is when Naomi returned, they had sold the family estate when they left. The family land had been sold. Um, they were desperate. They were out of food. And so they sold their property and they moved. When they came back, they wanted to get their land back. But her husband and her sons were dead and she couldn't afford to buy the land back. And so there was this clause in Jewish law called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer was somebody that was a close family in your clan, in your family, who could buy your land back. And it just so happened, there's so many, just so happens that Ruth just so happened to wind up in the field reaping that just happened to belong to a really nice guy named Boaz who just happened to be a kinsman redeemer. And so this idea that, that Boaz would redeem the land for Naomi was not just that. He would also marry Ruth. And so by inheriting the land, he would be responsible for Ruth too. And that's exactly what he did. He was the kinsman redeemer. That's the picture of who Jesus is for us. We sold our birthright. We have turned from God. We've sinned. We've abandoned him. We've gone our own way. And we need somebody to come and buy us back and bring us back in. And that's what Jesus is, a redeemer. He comes and he buys us back. He lived the life that we didn't live so that he could pay the debt that we owed. And then we're the bride of Christ. We're the church. And so he brings us in. So the idea of, of God visiting and redeeming his people is tied up in who Jesus is. It, it's all wrapped up in that. So that's this visit, um, this visit of God. Now, I'm not sure that Zechariah fully understood what all that meant, but he's prophesying. He's not speaking just his own words. This is him being carried along by the Holy Spirit to announce what this is going to be like. And so what will that visit and that redemption look like? Verse 69, Zechariah goes on. He says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So the horn of salvation, this is the only time that's mentioned in the New Testament. It's what's called a Hebraicism. Here's a, your $9 college-educated word of the day. A Hebraicism is, it was a, a phrase that would be in Hebrew that it would make sense. And then what Luke did when he translated it, when he wrote this, is he didn't even try to update it into a Greek idiom, uh, some Greek image that we would understand. He just left it as it was, a horn of salvation. So what is a horn of salvation? Well, in the Old Testament, the horn was like the horn of a ram or the horn of an ox. It was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of this, this animal's might. It was how an ox would defend itself. You didn't want to be on the horn end of the ox if it was angry. You'd lose every time. When the ram charged, it, it came with its horns. It was a symbol in the Old Testament of power, of strength. It was, it was a symbol of something really important and significant. So he has raised up a horn of salvation. Well, what is a horn of salvation? I think what he's talking about there is he's saying that God is able to save. It's an expression of God's power. His strength, his might is this horn of salvation. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
we just did for Samuel. So we know who David is. David was probably Israel's greatest king. Solomon was much richer and, and had a whole lot more going on, but David was the one who was said was a man after God's own heart. He was the righteous and the good king. And so in this house of David, in this, this, this trajectory of David, in this family of David, this horn of salvation would be raised up. And that's the other way the Old Testament uses a horn as an image, is it's often picturing a king, a strong and a mighty king. So in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has these bizarre visions, just weird things happening. And the weirdest one in, in chapter 7 is this beast that rises up out of the ocean. And it's got all kinds of strange things about it, including he notices 10 horns. And what we learn as we continue through Daniel is those are 10 kings. So the, the king can be pictured as a horn. So what it sounds like he's saying is God has raised up this king who's going to bring salvation. He's going to be an offspring of David, and he's going to, he's going to sit on that throne. He's going to rule in that way. Um, that's the picture that he's got. So God visits. He brings salvation and redemption, and that is going to come in this offspring of David, this mighty king who is powerful to save. That, that's that salvation that's promised. Now, where Zechariah goes with this is he roots it in prophecy. He roots this not in something that just came up yesterday, but something ancient. And so verse 70 and 71, he says, God's going to do this as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Do you notice that Zechariah is prophesying about prophecies? He's going to do it again because he's going to call his son a prophet. So he's prophesying about prophecies and prophets. But he says that this was based on these prophecies. God's bringing salvation in this way was not a new and novel thing. It was what God had promised all along. There's not a whole bunch about John the Baptist in the Old Testament in the prophecies. We looked at them, right? We looked at Isaiah 40. We mentioned Malachi chapter 3. Um, that was talking about John the Baptist coming and pointing to, um, to the, the, the coming Messiah, the Savior. There's a lot more about him in the Old Testament. There's plenty of prophecies. We could go to any one of them. One I think that Zechariah may have had in mind, though, is Jeremiah 23. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet after Israel got great and big and huge and then fell into apostasy, and they were being carried off into exile, the end of, of their time. But Zechariah wasn't always bad news. He was looking forward with hope as well. And so here's one of his prophecies that I think uh, it, it ties into how uh, Zechariah is talking. Uh, Ze Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So it has all of those things in there. It talks about David. It talks about righteousness, about being saved, about dwelling securely. I think that's probably what he's thinking of. So this, these prophecies, he's looking at, and he's saying, these are coming true. So remember, his, his topic right now is about who God is. God is going to do these things. God is going to bring this about. God is going to visit us. He's going to do it through this king, and this is what it'll be like. And this is rooted in what he's promised us throughout time what he's told us through all of his prophets. It's not always doom and gloom. Sometimes there's rays of hope. And so this horn of salvation will deliver us from our enemies. Now, do you remember last week when we talked about um, uh, John the Baptist and, and 
his anticipation, anticipating what the king would be like. I said there are different ideas of what the Messiah would look like. Uh, some people thought there were two messiahs or three messiahs, and they didn't know how to fit it all together, all of these prophecies. I think this is kind of what Zechariah is thinking of here, too, is he's, he's going to deliver us from our enemies. This, this branch or this, uh, this horn of salvation is going to come. He's going to cast off all of those rotten Romans, get them out. He's going to purify the temple. This is all going to be great. They're thinking politically. Now, I say that not to dismiss or belittle Zechariah, the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years and heard his teaching constantly didn't get it. That's why in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, they go, oh, so now is the time? Is it, is it now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is, is now the time we get the political stuff? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know that. Don't worry about that. Go out and make disciples of the nations. Do that instead. So there is just this great expectation for the Messiah to be this reigning king. And so I think he's thinking along those lines. What they didn't understand was in his first coming, that's not how it's going to be. He's going to bring salvation. In his second coming, that's when he's going to rule. And so that, that's kind of the difference. In other words, what this promised horn of salvation is going to do is he's going to touch enemies that we can't get near. He's going to defeat enemies we have absolutely no way of dealing with. He's going to deal with our enemies that are really threats to our soul, sin. He's going to deal with the devil. He's going to deal with the world. All of these things that are going to take our souls away from God, he's going to defeat those enemies. And then when he returns, he'll reign and he'll rule. And so the, the context in which that promise comes is something called a covenant. This is uh, verses 72 through 75. So he's going to save us, deliver us from the hand of those who hate us to show the mercy he promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So there's, there's the word covenant is mentioned in there, but what is a covenant? That's not something that we hear a lot today, typically. I think the only place I've heard covenant has to do something with real estate, but I don't remember. Um, when you look at covenant in the Bible, a covenant is, is I think, the simplest, basest answer is, is an oath-bound promise. It is something that God has sworn he would do, and it is a promise to us. It's, it's not necessarily something that they're going to experience right at that moment, but it is a promise. And so when you look at the scriptures, what you'll see is covenant and promise and oath are all kind of used somewhat interchangeably um, when it comes to, especially to God. So God had this promise to our fathers. So the fathers of Israel, the ancients of Israel, the old tribes of Israel, God made a promise to them. And that is a covenant that he made with them. He made a promise to Father Abraham, that they would inherit the land. He made a promise to Father Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. You can't count how many kids you're going to have. He made a promise that kings would come from him. He made a promise that all the nations would bless themselves in the name of Abraham. That was a covenant. That was a covenant promise. And so this is the promise that he's talking about, these promises to our father, the oath that he swore to Father Abraham to grant that we would, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, um, and so this happened about 1,800 years before Jesus was even born, when God spoke to Abraham. That's how longstanding this covenant was. This is not 
somebody made up on the spot, oh, we'll do that. This has been something that's been going on. And so here's, here's the promise. This is after Abraham was commanded to offer Isaac on the altar, and God spared him. God said, nope, don't do that. There's a ram. Take the ram instead. God promised. He said, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Think about that imagery for a moment. This, this was in the days when cities would be walled and there would be a prime gate, a main gate. And if your enemy was in there, you couldn't get at him. It would be hard. It was very difficult to take down a city. But your offspring, he's not going to just oppose those cities. He's going to own their gates. He will decide when that gate is open and closed. That is total subjection of his enemies. And that's what I think Zechariah is thinking of, is he's going to deliver us from those who hate us because of his covenant promise, because this is something God swore. This is something that he would do. And so that's, that's the promise that he delivers. But he also says that, that the reason for his deliverance is, um, verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So it's not just a political move. It's not just he's going to subdue these enemies and we'll be free and that's great. Remember, the enemies he's going to defeat are ones that, that we can't touch. So as, as threatening as Babylon was in those days or Rome was in those days or Hamas is to Israel today, as bad as that is, God's going to deliver us from something even greater. And the end of that deliverance is not going to be, uh, now we'll have autonomy and we'll be able to rule ourselves and, and have this. It's even better. He's going to deliver us so that we can be without fear, so that we can serve him in holiness and in righteousness, and we'll do that not just momentarily here and there, but we will do that all of our days permanently. That's what it means to be delivered from these enemies that we can't touch, from sin and death and hell, from being freed from them. That frees us from fear. Because what the Bible says is that Satan had rule over us because of the fear of death, because he had control of death. But we've been set free. Now it's like, oh, oh you're going to kill me? That's all? You'll usher me into the presence of my Savior? That's not a threat. That's not a problem. We are set free from fear. And he says that we will do this in holiness, in, in holiness and in righteousness always, not momentarily, not here and there. Zechariah, remember, was a priest, and so he's probably thinking of this serving God in context of the temple, that we will be able to go into the temple with, without fear and, and with holiness and with righteousness. He's going he's gonna to purify us and make us better. And then, then we'll have security, and that's, that's great and wonderful. But those enemies are not the ones that he has to fear. That's, that's not where it goes. Remember the, the great song, Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Grace it was that taught us to be afraid, to know our danger, to know that we were in deep, deep trouble." And then after grace comes in and stirs up in us a fear of what waits before us, of condemnation, of judgment that's coming, then grace comes in and says, now let me take care of that for you. 
I, I've defeated that for you. And so that's, that's what it does. That's what he does. So what Jesus is going to do, he's not going to be another Zechariah. He's not going to be another Aaron. He's not going to be another priest who has to go into the temple, offer the sacrifice, come back out, and then the next day go in and do it for another uh, sin and another sin and another sin. In the old covenant with that standing temple, all you could do is get this sin forgiven. And then the next day when you did another one, you came back and you got that sin forgiven. This Jesus, this this. Uh, horn of salvation he does something even better listen to what it says in hebrews chapter 9 describing jesus for christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Zechariah was, was blessed to be able to go into the temple. And the, the priest would go in and offer these sacrifices. Jesus comes and he says, we don't need to do that anymore. He didn't go into a temple made with hands. He didn't go into a physical building. That physical building was supposed to represent something true and eternal and great. It was supposed to represent God's place in heaven. And so Jesus, instead of going into the temple and offering himself, he ascends into heaven and enters the actual presence of God. And that way, instead of having to come and offer atonement for sin over and over again, he does it once. And so this is how we can serve him in holiness and in righteousness all of our days because it's not our holiness it's not our righteousness that we come before god with it is our great and better high priest who has been righteous and holy for us and so we enter in through him that's how we get to be righteous and holy all of our days so that's the promise that zechariah has that's the picture that he has the thing he's most thankful for and by the way now he gets to john he finally gets to the point where he's going to talk about John and does it briefly. Verses 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's what he has to say to his son. He doesn't even say his name is John. He wrote that down. We're done with that. Instead, now, instead of talking to his neighbors, he turns to his son and he says, You, child will be the prophet of the Most High. So he was prophesying, he was prophesying about prophecies, and now he's prophesying about a prophet. John will be the prophet. He will go before the Lord. And remember, we looked at that, that idea of going before the Lord uh, previously. There was a promise from Isaiah 40 that the voice of one crying in the wilderness would prepare the way of the Lord. We saw from Malachi 3 that Jesus then talks to himself, I will send my servant before me to prepare my way. And so that's who John is. That's just acknowledging again that this is what's going to happen. But John is going to come and he's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist is going to show up and what he's going to do is he's going to start uh, preaching a baptism of repentance. That's preparing the way. You people need to get ready. You need to recognize your need. You need to recognize the danger you're in. And you need to repent. And so that's what that baptism was. And then when Jesus shows up, John points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sins of the world, not atones for this individual sin, he takes away the sins of the world. That is him preaching salvation and giving a knowledge of forgiveness of sins. This is how this is going to happen. And John hasn't said a word yet. He's an infant. And so that's the promise. That's the promise of Christmas. That's what John does for us as Christmas, is he points us to the Savior. He says, look, God has visited us, not just by bringing us um, deliverance from slavery or food. He's physically visited us. The eternally begotten Son of God took on human flesh. He took on human nature and became a baby. He visited us in a way that was so much better than the old promises, than the old pictures. He did it physically. He visited us and he brought us salvation, not just atonement for sin, but salvation all of our days. And all we're required to do, all we have to do to latch on to this great and precious promise is trust it. We just say, Lord, I, I, I have seen what I am capable of. I have made horrible decisions. I hit curbs. I park poorly. I've made bad investment decisions. I've seen what happens when I'm in charge of my life. I don't want to even touch my salvation. I'm going to trust you. You're in charge of my salvation. So I was asked one time, what would you do if you die and go to heaven? And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And my answer was I would lean around and point at the throne and go, I'm with Jesus. And it's my only hope. That's, that's all we have. That's what John was pointing us to. That's what Christmas points us to. That's what Jesus calls us to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. Merry Christmas. What a wonderful present he's given us. Let's unwrap that thing. Let's, let's get that. That's the present we want. And so the chapter ends, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. So John grew up in the wilderness, apparently, a wild man, until his public appearance, until he began his ministry pointing to and saying, get ready for Jesus. And so that is why throughout this whole Advent set of messages, we've been looking at John the Baptist as he's preparing us, he's pointing us to our kinsman redeemer who would buy us back, who would come as a baby, who would be one of us, and who would redeem us from all of those things. And so why does he do it? Verse 78 and 79, because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise, the, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That's why he did it. That's the point of this, is the sunshine has come. That's why we light candles. That's why Christmas is a festival of lights, is because the light has come. He's, he's arrived. When he's born, there's this miraculous star, this heavenly light that does something stars don't do. It travels and it settles over houses and it does strange things. When he died, there was a lack of light. There was, a, there was an eclipse. There was more than an eclipse. Eclipses don't last three hours. There was darkness for three hours because the light had come into the world. And that's our promise. That's our Christmas present. Here is the light. He has come to us. Merry Christmas, everybody. Enjoy your present. And then you can go and enjoy your, the things that we box up and wrap papers around, but don't miss the best present. John the Baptist wrapped it for us. He delivered it to us, and he said, he put the tag on it that says, for you. So don't miss that present. Let's close in prayer. Lord, um, we sang earlier about you, you didn't come with uh, strings of pearls and, and 
rich robes and, and all of these wonderful, great and, and awesome things. You didn't come to confront our politics and to, to fight our battles and, and win our wars, Lord. You came as a baby in a manger. You, you, the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, added to himself a human nature, the human nature of a, an infant. The baby in the manger, by the exertion of his will, is holding all things together, keeping stars from flying apart, and he can't control his bowels. That is an amazing humility on your part, Lord. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for being our Christmas present. And Lord, may we open that present with joy so that we can live in righteousness and holiness all of our days. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.